Are you here? I only know if you're here, if I can hear you. <laughs> in all seriousness, you're tuned into the Paul Leslie Hour, coming at you from the coast of Carolina. We got an interview from our archives with Miss Tina Gullickson, singer, hemp advocate, native Californian, and awesome to gaze upon. Now, before we get the interview cranking, maybe you'd do us just a wee favor. Subscribe. Uh-huh. Go to YouTube, look up Paul Leslie, and subscribe. And don't forget to ring that bell. Ding, ding. Won't you do it, please? Now, most of you know Tina Gullickson for her many performances as a backup singer with Jimmy Buffett's Coral Reefer Band since, wow, 1995. Now, this interview with vocalist Tina Gullickson was recorded at a swanky hotel in Hotlanta, Georgia. Now, Paul has done a lot of interviews with the Coral Reefers, but get this. The broadcast with Tina Gullickson is the one that received the most attention all through the years. Really something, isn't it? And it's well worth noting that Miss Tina Gullickson is a lovely, charming woman, and she can whang that guitar. So we hope she releases a solo album one day. On Christmas Day 2022, Jimmy Buffett will be turning 76. That's part of the inspiration for us releasing this interview today. Please join us in wishing Mr. Buffett the happiest birthday ever. Just keep in mind, the Paul Leslie Hour is made possible by listeners just like you. Be a, a, a patron of the spoken word. Go to www.thepaulleslie.com slash support, and we'd be thanking you. Now we'd be honored if you'd listen to the Tina Gullickson interview right here on the Paul Leslie Hour. It is my extreme pleasure to welcome native Californian vocalist and songwriter, Miss Tina Gullickson. Good afternoon. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. So how did music start for you? Oh, my. I started singing in church when I was quite young in a choir. And at that time, it was something that was enjoyable but scary. And it was probably because my mom was encouraging me to uh, participate. But I really took an interest probably as early as elementary school. I wanted to play bass. And we had a, an upright bass in the house, and, and I started playing that. And then eventually guitar and a number of other instruments that I never really mastered. But you know. <laughs> anyway, uh, pretty early on. And you've been an artist and entertainer your entire life. Did you ever imagine another path? I don't think so. I, uh, growing up in an artistic environment, it was uh, a very wonderful creative way to grow up and, and I was always encouraged to do pretty much whatever I wanted to do artistically and, and I had felt that maybe that was going to be the path as far as fine arts go and when music sort of filtered into the artistic mix that sort of took over and and I didn't really I, actually there is one thing now that I, I'm almost embarrassed to say when when I was in school I thought, well, I'm not going to take typing because I don't really want to sit in an, an indoor situation. <laughs> and now I'm really wishing that I had because I'd be a much faster person on the computer. But anyway, <laughs> I, I always hoped and, and dreamed of 
pursuing artistic directions, and uh, I've been very fortunate. So tell us about the Doodle Town Pipers. <laughs> well, I guess you got that info off my website. <laughs> I auditioned one time for for that group, and got the got the gig. It was a group that had had success. It was it was one of those up with people, uh, Christy Minstrels type groups. And actually, I believe that Mr. Buffett may have auditioned for the Christie Minstrels, and I, I might be wrong in mentioning that. But anyway, it was it was an era of large groups of singers that were happy and did a lot of pop music. And anyway, I, I performed with them for a, a number of years, and it was a great learning experience. I, I still draw on things that I learned from uh, our, our wonderful manager and coach. I'm very happy for that experience, although I remember at the time feeling kind of embarrassed because I didn't think it was that hip at that time. Hmm. <laughs> so, Well, what came after that? I had the good fortune of modeling. Actually, I started modeling when I was in high school. The opportunity to work with the Pipers came along. That seemed like the, the direction to go, but I, I did continue doing a number of things. Living in L.A., it gives you the opportunity to, to be involved in you know a lot of things, and I got back into doing some modeling and some commercials, television commercials, and basically I am the kind of person that if, if an opportunity comes along that looks like it's going to be something that's beneficial to the planet or good for my income and not hurting anybody, I jump at the chance. <laughs> sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But anyway, um, I did a few things that were um, entertainment connected in, in L.A., a number of things actually. Speaking of those, you've even been featured in music videos. In fact, I was reading a review about the John Waits music video, Change, and one reviewer pointed out that you were the focal point of the oh, movie wow, or the music cool. video. How cool. So, so tell us about that. That was a lot of fun. I'm really dating myself now, but in, in the first year of MTV, and I, I hadn't actually ever watched MTV at the time because I couldn't get cable at my house, but... I, I went on an audition. They were looking for a girl to, uh, as they described it, play someone who was stressed out and getting ready to jump off a cliff. And, and they wanted her to, to look a little bit like maybe she was a musician or rocker or something. And anyway, I just I just went on the audition with a number of other women in town and was lucky enough to land the role. And uh, we shot for two days on a soundstage in Los Angeles. And John was very cool. And the video shoot was, we actually, we shot it on film, and it was the first time that I had done anything like that, and I, I was just totally enjoying it, and uh, I got to do my own stunt work, which, <laughs> which was pretty cool, and also another thing that people don't probably realize if they if they have watched the video, but they really wanted my character to look like she was just really having a hard hard time with life, and so they, they wanted me to be crying for those two days all the time. And so I tried to put myself, you know, being a method actress, you know, I tried to put myself in, into that headspace and, and produce some own, my own tears, which, which I did do successfully some of the time. And the rest of the time, they just blew some really strong camphor into my eyes. So, hmm. so I, was, I was streaming tears for two days. <laughs> but anyway, it was a really positive experience. And then one of the other funny things about it was is I, I didn't really get to see the finished product for a whole year. And it was playing on MTV in, in high rotation for that whole time, and I never even got to see it. So people would wave and honk, you know, as I was walking down the street, and I wasn't really sure why. But <laughs> anyway, I eventually got a copy, and I'm, I'm very proud of it. And 
it is something that kind of represents the early video days of MTV and I'm glad that people still get to see it. I guess it's on YouTube now, so it's pretty easy to watch. If, if I you, think it is. Yeah. Tell us about some of the artists you have done vocal sessions for. Well, probably the outside of of Jimmy, obviously. The most interesting person that I've worked with that I've mentioned frequently because I really like her is Tori Amos. And Tori and I met through a mutual friend a number of years ago when when she was still trying to get her career rolling. And, and I used to cut her hair and we'd hang out a little bit and talk about music. But eventually our, our mutual friend, my girlfriend named Nancy, and, and Tori and I had done some demos for Tori. And then we did do some tracks for some of her earlier albums. And she's just a really cool person. And I really admire her. And I don't get to see her too often these days, but she's she's probably you know right up there with some of my favorites. And then I used to do a lot of ghost vocal work where, you know, you'd kind of go in and just do a little bit of shadowing or a little bit of doubling of, of vocals of various artists that probably wouldn't be too cool for me to mention because that kind of stuff is usually um, understood that, you know, we, we do that and receive our reimbursement. And <laughs> reimbursement's the wrong word, but anyway, I try not to, you know, mention who I, I did that for, but I did do a lot of that. <laughs> What music did you listen to growing up, and what do you listen to now? Well, my biggest influence was, and, and still is, a lot of the Beatle production. I was really taken with that, as were most of us in that era, and I still enjoy listening to the productions. And Now what's cool is, of course, we can listen to the mixes that we never got to hear back then and, and really study you know, how they did things. And now I, I really... Um, I like to listen to a lot of different things. I, I still, that's a tough question. I really have a, a pretty wide, eclectic palette. Oh, there's, there's so much great music out there. How did you come to join Jimmy Buffett and the Coral Reefer Band? I have a dear friend named Mary Harris who used to sing with Jimmy. And Mary and I played in a band called Frankie and the Bluebirds. And we always really enjoyed singing together. And when she uh, was working with Jimmy, she would keep in contact once in a while, but we, we didn't obviously get to stay in touch as often because she was on the road. And one time she called me and she said, Tina, she said, I'm really thinking about spending more time with my family and I want to have more kids. And I really think that you would be my choice to recommend for for the job if you'd be interested and I really didn't know too much about Jimmy at that time and and I said well thank you very much and I'll try to send something and kind of the rest is history <laughs> she she will always be uh, someone that I, I consider a dear friend and I thank her as often as possible because it's been a, a really great ride what did you think of Mr. Buffett when you met him I was very surprised at how down to earth and and how how fun he was to be around. You know, I, I remember the first rehearsal that I came to and thinking, wow, this is a really cool mix of people. And I didn't really know. I felt very honored. And, and maybe like the first three weeks that I played with the band was probably my audition. And I was pretty blown away with the talent. And I remember saying to Jimmy that I, I thought this just seemed like so much fun. And he probably said something like, well, there's a lot more fun ahead of us and 
and welcome aboard. And I, I just thought that it was really cool. Is there a member of the Coral Reefer band you feel closer to? Well, sure. Uh, my girl, Nadira, you know, we, we stand next to each other every night and hang in the dressing room and probably talk about things more in depth than I would with anybody else. <laughs> sure. Tell us about your association with Peter Mayer. I know you were the executive producer of the music video, Shall We Dance? Mm -hmm. And you have sung with his project, the Peter Mayer Group. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Well, I'll start by uh, talking about the video. I remember one day at catering, Peter was talking about the possibility of shooting some video for his album, Green-Eyed Radio. And my husband has been involved in video production for a number of years and actually now he's working as a photographer but at the time he was hoping to get involved with directing music videos and he has a musical background as well and so it seemed like something that I could kind of tie together and so I kind of mentioned to Peter that or he actually asked me being the LA girl that I am if I had some contacts with people in the industry that could possibly direct or help produce and the light bulb clicked inside of me, and I thought, yeah, I do. <laughs> so I I, uh, I called my husband, and I said, you know, Peter's thinking of shooting some video, and who do we know that would be good? And he said, are you kidding? He said, I would love to do something like that. So I, I approached Peter with the idea that maybe we could get involved, and things worked out. And so I, I got involved as executive producer, stylist, liaison, and we had a great time and hope that Peter was happy. I think he was. <laughs> yeah, it was a great experience. And I've been very honored to uh, be involved since with uh, a few of Peter's projects. And I love singing with him, and I, I hope to be able to do a little bit more of that in the future. I just I love his voice. I love his guitar playing. And be able to, as I've mentioned, to be able to work with these type talents and, and is, uh, is just a, a dream come true. It's been really interesting for me to talk to all these people, and one of the exciting things is I've talked to all of the women in the Coral Reefer band from the 70s, wow. uh, starting with Deborah McCall all the way up until now, and I wondered, would you say that the Coral Reefer women are like a sisterhood? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Reeferettes rock, sure. <laughs> Some of the listeners out there may not know that you're also a songwriter. How long have you been writing songs? I probably started writing songs as soon as I started playing guitar, which would have been, I think I got my first guitar when I was 11 or 12. And those songs will probably never be heard by anybody. But I, I think the first songs that I started writing with the intent to perform or, or uh, share with anybody would have been probably in the early 80s. And I was performing with the group that I mentioned, Frankie and the Bluebirds, and also a, another group that was called Humanoids on Parade. And we did a number of, of my tunes at that time. And what's interesting is that each of those projects in their own way have contributed to who I am and, and what I do now with Jimmy, although at the time I, I never dreamed that it would go in that direction. And now the songs that I'm writing are probably geared towards and, and influenced by, of course, this environment, but 
I think that even some of the material that I wrote back in the day is probably going to be recorded at some point and shared with everybody. Tell us about the song Mango Tango. I was uh, driving home from the local health food store with a, with a Mango Tango juice in my hand. You know, the uh, I'm going to plug the company, Oddwalla Juice makes a <laughs> Mango Tango smoothie. And between the time it took me to, to uh, leave the health food store and get home, this little jingle ran through my head. And I thought, oh, that'd be kind of cool if I ever got this little this little tidbit of a jingle to the company. And, and then I read that actually Odwalla Juice Company was started by some musicians and they probably didn't need a jingle. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I kind of got home and sat down at the piano and finished it in a couple days. And, and then it sort of just sat unheard for a while. And eventually I thought, well, you know, that song is kind of, kind of appropriate and I should probably share it with some people. So, so I made a little demo of it and eventually uh, that'll hopefully get re-recorded as well. Tell us about some of the other songs you have plans to release a solo project. What will it be like? There's one song that I would like to talk about. It's a song that is for parrot heads, inspired by parrot heads, and something that I think represents a part of the, the parrot head energy that possibly is not acknowledged enough. And the other night here in Atlanta, I went to a Mac McAnally show, which is always just a wonderful experience. And afterwards, I was talking to a fan, and, and she was saying, you know, I really feel that some of our charity work and some of the good deeds that we do goes unrecognized. And I said, wow. I said, boy, not with me. I, I try to get involved when I can, when the opportunity arises and I'm available, and I certainly share the successes with, with everybody that I come in contact with, including Jimmy. And I wanted her to know that that was something that I feel very proud of and, and want to share. So one of the songs that hopefully I'll be recording is called Party With A Purpose. And of course, that's the Parrot Head theme. And it's a song that was inspired by an event a few years ago. There was a girl that was in a very strange, unfortunate car accident. She was driving under a freeway overpass on a big chunk of cement went through the, the glass of her windshield and it damaged her. And she's actually the daughter of a friend of mine who's a drummer who plays in a Jimmy cover band. Anyway, the Los Angeles and Orange County Parrothead Clubs were doing some fundraising for her. And I wanted to do something to contribute. So I managed to um, put this little tune together, Party With a Purpose. And it's a simple tune that uh, I hope is going to be catchy and I'd like to perform it sometime. And actually, I played it down in Key West, and it's the kind of thing that's an audience participation song. <laughs> Interesting. And, uh, anyway, I, I hope that Parrot Heads enjoy it, and that will be one that I, I do want to cover. And I don't know. I, I like to write about things that are a part of my life. I think that's a smart thing to do, you know, things that we experience firsthand. And I like to write about things that are happy, and most people... I, I, no, I can't generalize and say that. A lot of songwriters get some of their best inspiration from heartache. You know, I, I could say that I could do that too, but I try to direct my my creative energies towards positivity and things that are happy. Not a bad idea. <laughs> I wanted to talk kind of about that. You mentioned Key West a second ago, mm -hmm. and you do a lot of connecting with some of these island bands, like Tropical Soul, and then there's a gent named Jerry Gontang. Mm-hmm. And not many of the coral reefers do this to the extent that you do. Uh -huh. What got you into working with those artists? Well, 
Mike McLean, who was a friend of mine, had been the president of the Los Angeles Parrot Head Club, and he approached me one time at a Peter Mayer show. Peter was doing a, an acoustic set in the LA area, and Mike came up to me and said hi, and he wanted to introduce himself, and he said, you know, my my son is involved with the the yearbook at Simi Valley High School, where I understand you went to school, and my jaw dropped open. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, he uh, became a friend and he said, you know, at some point it would be really cool if you wanted to drop by one of our gatherings. And I said, all right, you know, and so I did. And and I didn't realize that not too many band members had done that kind of thing. And and so I thought it would be kind of cool to break the ice and show up at a few of these functions and help out with their fundraisers. And, And then I got to meet, you know, some of the bands like Jerry's band and he invited me to sit in and, you know, it was just kind of an organic thing. And the wonderful thing about these events is that everybody, of course, is there to have a good time. But as I mentioned, a lot of these gatherings raise great amounts of money that go to really good causes. And I feel that it's something that I can do that really helps out on a number of levels. And so I really enjoy that. I was really fascinated by this. I believe you went to Amsterdam and reported back to discuss this. But you are a supporter and promoter of hemp products. I am. I am. So tell us about that. In fact, I'm wearing a tank top right now that's made out of 100% hemp knit. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I have some friends that are uh, active in the hemp movement and have been for a number of years. And they approached me one time. They, there's a museum in Amsterdam that had been primarily known as the, the Hash Museum. And, and they said, you know, we want to update this museum and inform people that there's a big difference between cannabis that's used for recreation and cannabis that's grown for industrial purposes. And now, of course, it is a little bit more discussed and more well-known. But what I think that is so cool now is that there are a number of products, fabrics, things that people are using to help green the planet that are uh, like, for example, bamboo is being now used quite a bit. And there are some, some other very sustainable, renewable sources that are, are being introduced into the, uh, the industry. But what's great about hemp is that you can use the fiber for fabric and for you can actually make things like using the cellulose, which is from the center of the stock. You can make products even as sturdy as cement. You can build with it. You can car companies like Mercedes have been using the fiber to incorporate into their panels, like their dash panels and their door panels and stuff, for kind of going unknown for a long time. The the fabrics are very soft and breathable, like cotton, but it grows without pesticide. The industrial hemp stock can grow to 12 feet tall in about three months, and then you can have a second planting in a year. So you can get quite a bit out of the soil. You can the leaves drop and refurbish the soil with nutrients. The seed is a a wonderful producer of oil and protein. You can get a a very high-quality protein from from grinding the seed. You get a very high-quality oil that is uh, full of omega-3s, 6s, and 9s. It's the perfect blend of of those proteins. So it's great for people like me who are vegetarian. You can supplement your diet with that. And there aren't really a whole lot of sources for those omega-3 and 6s. You can get it from flax, which is a cousin to the cannabis, but you get a perfect blend of the three sixes and nines in the seed that you don't get from any other vegetable. And 
it's also something now that in countries like Canada, who can now grow it very freely, it's a very wonderful source of fuel for biodiesel. And I think that unfortunately now we're using a lot of corn for our ethanols, and, and it's really sad to be using that kind of food for, I shouldn't say sad, I mean, it's great that we're finding alternative sources, but it's unfortunate that it's robbing our, our corn as a food source. And when we have such a wonderful resource as something like the hemp plant that grows so quickly and, and basically doesn't need anything except for sunshine and soil, I really hope that sometime that we'll be able to uh, grow it more widely around the world. That's really, really interesting. Very interesting. So it's a it's an ecologically friendly Absolutely. Plant. But just because we can only import it because of the fact that we can't grow it in this country. Correct. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. And, you know, we are importing. You can import the seeds if they've been steam sterilized, which is fine. They still have nutritional value. They just can't sprout. Right. So that's totally cool. We can import the product after it's been pressed into oils. We can import the fabrics after they've been – we can pretty much – bring any of it into the country as long as it's brought in under the rules that you know our, our DEA has set. And I understand partly, but I, I think it's really unfortunate that they still categorize it as something that's a threat and, and a worrisome product because there is really no way that you can, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to use industrial cannabis for a recreational purpose it's 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 not grown for that it's not bred for that and and we really have to distinguish the difference kind of jumping back to the performing side do you have a favorite place not only to visit when you're on the road but also to perform hmm. well i don't think i can pinpoint one particular favorite place but of course we do have the luxury of traveling to tropical places, and, and, and just being in that environment, of course, is, is really, really wonderful. And, you know, the, the atmosphere, it just, it just lends itself to, you know, our, our whole setting and whatnot. But I have personal little, little favorites in certain places just because a, a lot of the road for us ends up being more than being on stage. It, it ends up being the time that we spend together as a group and, you know, the, the conditions backstage. And I think of places like when we play in Boston, the place that has been called Great Woods for so long, which now, of course, has, it's probably Tweeter Center this year still. Anyway, they have a wonderful uh, herb garden outside where we get to <laughs> have our dining before the show. And that's, that's kind of delightful. And of course, I like playing in California because that's close to where my family and friends are. And when we play places occasionally like Santa Barbara, of course, I, I feel like I'm kind of at home, even though that's an hour or so away from where I live. It's it's kind of neat to be in that, that vibe. And I love playing in Toronto because I think that city is exceptional. And, you know, I've made friends in all the cities where, where we've played. And I, I just can't really pinpoint one particular place, but Jimmy has us playing in places that are great everywhere. So, yeah, it's all good. <laughs> when someone goes to hear you perform, either live or on a record, what do you hope the listener gets out of the experience? Well, I think that the level of musicianship mixed with the, the great showmanship that Jimmy has and the, the energy that's created on stage is, is just something that's exceptional and, and sort of understood. But I, from a personal standpoint, I feel that it's, it's a pretty high calling to be able to stand up in front of these 
wonderful numbers of people and to help them forget their troubles and escape. And we truly have a great time when we're on stage. And when I'm up there smiling and kicking my heels and enjoying myself, I hope that the people that are watching truly feel that and can, you know, we, we, as luminous beings reflect from each other. And if, if I'm shining some, some light and some happiness, I'm hoping that those that are watching feel that and, and can feel that happiness as well. And, and I, I try even intentionally sometimes, you know, there's a, when we're doing songs like maybe Southern Cross, for example, when, when I feel like I'm reaching out and gesturing to the crowd, I, I actually try to, uh, to send energy out through my whole body that, that is good, positive healing, shining light on everybody. And I know that sounds kind of corny, but it's true. I, I really try to do that, and I, I hope that people pick up on it. Oh, well, I mean, people can definitely pick up a vibe, Yeah, you know, always. When you're not on stage, what do you like to do on the road? Well, as a vegetarian, it's always a challenge for me to find good food. <laughs> so I, a lot of my days, uh, if we have a day off, are are spent in search of maybe the local health food store or maybe some kind of cool artistic hang maybe you know I, I i don't go to enough museums but i will catch something if there's something special in town or if i if i have a friend in town that i haven't seen for a while i'll maybe try to catch up with them a little bit or just get out and walk around and see the city i like to get a little exercise and i do like to go dancing and it's it's rare that we have that opportunity but if a few of us get a chance to go someplace where there's some good music and hear a little bit of that and burn a little energy on the dance floor. I like that. Kind of in that same vein, you can find out a lot about a person from the way they answer this question. What is your all-time favorite meal? Ooh. (laughs) Oh. I guess I'm a hard one to pinpoint a single favorite anything, but I'm a big pasta girl. I love a good veggie pasta. You know, it's pretty hard to beat some, you know, some fresh pasta with some Maybe some garlic, olive oil, olives, and fresh tomatoes. And <laughs> of course, in, in the morning, I wouldn't start the day with pasta. I like a fresh fruit smoothie. And let's see, lunchtime, what would be good? I have a favorite sandwich. This is going to sound silly to most of, of course, most of the listeners are not going to be vegetarian and they're going to say, oh, yuck, but a good avocado sandwich is pretty hard to oh, beat. Oh, man. <laughs> Oh, I eat those. <laughs> uh, they, they, if they don't like that, they're missing out. That's, <laughs> yeah. And I've been, I've been really hooked on the smoothies lately too. Banana. Yeah, yeah. Okay, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're getting hungry here. <laughs> <laughs> moving on. Tell us about some of your other passions other than music. I was hoping you could tell us about. As an artist, I have been designing for the uh, the glass industry for quite a while. And it's something that I did full-time before I started working with Jimmy. And now I do it part-time when I'm home. And it's kind of evolved from... I used to do a lot of stained glass work, actually, and I love that. And it's very, very satisfying because you're working with this medium that's been used for centuries. And you work with the glass and you cut it and, and... mold it and then you get to see light shining through it and it's just it's great but i don't do that much anymore because it's 
you kind of cut your hands up a lot, and I don't like doing that and playing guitar. And and also you're working with lead, and I I don't really think that breathing lead fumes when you're soldering is very healthy. So I don't do that much anymore. But what came out of that was designing for what I think is a little bit a healthier version of that. And I, I do a lot of designing for a friend who etches glass. So I don't actually do the sandblasting and etching, but I do his design work for him. And most recently, I'm I'm real proud of a theater that I helped to remodel in L.A. called the El Rey. It's it's down in a historic district in on Wilshire Boulevard, actually, and they restored it back to uh, a very beautiful venue. And so I took the elements of the original designs from when it was built early in the century and incorporated that into the etchings in the glass. And so that was kind of fun. I like to do all kinds of things that are artsy. I, I like to design clothing and and that's actually one of the things that kind of got me involved with the hemp movement as well there are lots of great designs now that are out of hemp fabrics but before i started working with jimmy i i decided that i was going to start a little business and designing clothes that i like to wear so anyway i i've been sewing and creating designs ever since i can remember and i do like to paint and well of course You've probably heard or read that I, I rescue rabbits. <laughs> so, yeah, rabbits. Yeah. How many rabbits do you have? Well, I'm down to seven right now, which doesn't seem like too many compared to what I've had, but still a, a lot to take care of, especially when I'm traveling. But I started rescuing them. I always associate it with uh, Don't Stop the Carnival Year in 1998. <laughs> so I, I actually found some bunnies in a pet store that was going out of business and they really needed some care and a home, and I brought them home and thought, well, I'll find homes for them, but fell in love with them and kept them, and then more bunnies came, and some by accident and some through friends that needed help, and eventually I, I had a lot of bunnies, and so I started building this wonderful bunny land in my backyard, and so that actually became a, a hobby and a necessity, and so I, I spent a lot of, a lot of hours taking care of these wonderful furry creatures that are very misunderstood and they they make wonderful pets and I just love them. <laughs> and so I've spent a lot of my extra pennies and time and love on keeping these creatures healthy and trying to find homes for them. And actually most of them end up staying at my house. <laughs> but anyway, that's, that's one of the things that I spend a lot of time on with. <laughs> yeah. Rabbits can actually take up some time. Yeah. But they're great. They're really smart and they're really affectionate and they have wonderful personalities. And you don't really get a chance to, to experience that until they're living with you. And, and most of mine live in my backyard and they have very luxurious – I call it the four seasons but <laughs> for bunnies. But anyway, if they do actually live in the house, like, like maybe a cat or dog, you really get to see their great personalities. And I hope that more people get to appreciate and, and rescue. And, and I have to say that I hope that Eventually, people realize that they're not the kind of pet that you should just buy as a cute little Easter gift for a child that doesn't understand that they need care. It's, right. it's the kind of thing that if we can at all help to rescue the ones that are already around. or I just see a lot of these little creatures that are bought from pet stores, and, and people don't understand that they, they do need certain types of care. And 
That's that's how I ended up with as many as I have, because I think that perhaps they don't realize that they can dig out of enclosures and they can, they naturally want to build a burrow. That's where they would live in the wild. They live underground. And so if you don't have an area that's, that's bunny safe, they're going to get out and they're going to either be, you know, in a dangerous situation where there are cars or traffic or creatures, you know, they are birds, they're creatures of prey. And so they, they, uh, they don't have a good chance out in, in the, in the wild and, Sometimes people say, well, I'll just release it out on the golf course. There are lots of wild bunnies out there. Well, a domestic creature like that's not going to make never it. Never survive, no. So people need to know that they do make great pets, but you need to, to treat it in a way that they can have a safe environment. Working our way back to the Coral Reefer Band, do you have a favorite memory of yours? Oh, sure. <laughs> lots of favorite memories. You keep coming back to the favorite thing, and it's like, I have too <laughs> There's many too favorite many things. To yeah. Probably, well, the first thing that comes to mind is not my favorite memory, but it, it has to do with shoes. I love shoes, as a lot of girls do, and I can think of times where, you know, I've, I've wanted to get this really great pair of shoes, and, and of course, some of you are going to be thinking, why are you even talking about shoes when everybody should be just wearing flip-flops or going barefoot, But and I like to go barefoot, too, but... You know, it's pretty hard to beat a great pair of high heels when you're, you know, on stage. <laughs> so, so anyway, I can think of times where I've seen a great pair of shoes and I thought, well, gosh, I don't know if it's in the budget or whatever. And then I'll end up wearing them and Jimmy will get a grin on his face and say, yeah, those look great. Or, you know, the guys will make a comment and I'll just think, well, that just makes my day to think <laughs> they're, they're actually noticing. And, and then I'll think, well, Maybe I should kick them off, you know, and just be barefoot. But, you know, just just silly things like that, you know, can make a girl's day. But there are so many great moments. And one of the kind of interesting things that I kind of I don't want to take for granted, but I, I forget. And as long as we're thinking of favorite moments, when when we're traveling, we have the luxury of traveling in great private jets sometimes. And sometimes I just, you know, they're so smooth and they're so wonderful. And sometimes I think, you know, I'll look out the window and it's it's like, here we are up in the sky and in heaven looking down through the clouds and it's just it's just really hard to even you know fathom what we're doing you know we're traveling in the epitome of style and with people that we love being around and they're just really moments like that that I will always remember that don't really involve being on the stage but that are kind of special that you know not everybody gets to experience yeah this last question i have this show is going out all over the world. So what would you, as Tina Gullickson, like to say to the world? I would like to say that I'm very encouraged with the way that our year is progressing politically. And I don't really know if it's safe to talk about politics, but I'm really pleased that more people are getting involved with greening the planet and participating in trying to change things for the good. And if there are things that I can do to help that, I'm certainly going to do it. And I really, I really admire people like, like Bono, who has been obviously a, a great influence on our music in this generation, but has taken such huge strides to make us aware of what's going on in the world and make us realize that we can do things that really make a difference. And I hope sometime to actually get to meet and maybe be involved with projects that are helping like what he and, and people like that do. 
and Jimmy does so many wonderful things as well. And anytime that I can do things outside of performing that support his good works, I am there. <laughs> so I guess that would be uh, probably the best way to encapsulate <laughs> what I'd like to to project. Thank you very much for making the time to speak with me. It's been lovely. Well, thank you very much, and I hope that we get a chance again. And maybe in the future I'll grab a guitar and have a couple tunes and we can uh, have a little jam or something. That would be something to look forward to. <laughs> All right. Well, thank right. you very much. Thank you. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com. Click on Support the Show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, the entertainer, written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano, the traditional song, Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me. The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.